Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10. Some of you are saying, well, Pastor, the Scripture's right here on the sheet. Open your Bible anyway. <laughs> Here's why. I want you to be real familiar with your Bible. Man, I want you to be so in tune with your Bible that you know where the books of the Bible are, that you know how to find where you're at in Scripture. More than just Googling it, more than asking Siri how to get there, amen. Ask the Spirit how to lead you there. And open up your real, tangible, physical Bible and touch something of God's Word, amen. I love the Word of God. And so as you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and Luke chapter number 10, we're in a series on Wednesday night called um, uh, Deprivation. And tonight we're talking about desensitization. It's the lack of sensitivity. And so it's going to be awesome. But hey, a couple things coming up. On December the 24th, that's Christmas Eve, here's what we got going on. We got a service at 8.30, a service at 10.30, and a service at 11 p.m. that night. And I want you to come to two of the three services. Amen. Come on, I want you to make that midnight service. It's the 11 p.m. service. It's the funnest service we have all year. Everybody comes relaxed and in a great mood because Christmas is the next day. We bring in Christmas Day at the, as the body of Christ, and it's an amazing time just in the presence of God that, that we get to experience the birth of Jesus Christ together as the church. And so I want you to make that 11 p.m. service. Also make that 8.30 or 10.30 service. Celebrate it with your family uh, that coming Sunday morning. It's going to be a fun time as well. And so that's December 24th. But listen, January 1st is right around the corner. Can I get an amen? amen? You're about to launch into 2018. So I want you already praying today about what your quiet time is going to be like in 2018. Okay? Don't wait till the first day of the new year gets here and says, man, I wonder what God's got for me this year. No, Advent is the preparation for the celebration of of the nativity of Jesus Christ is what Advent truly means. But Advent in your life is the preparation for the celebration. So I want you to prepare the last three weeks of this year about how you're going to celebrate in the Word of God next year. Amen? I'm so excited about my quiet time next year. Man, three years ago, God just said, Joel, read strictly the New Testament. Two years ago, he said, just read all the Gospels. This past year, he said, just read Matthew chapter 3, 4, and 5 every single day in your quiet time. And this year, he said, I want you to start over from the beginning. Start back in Genesis and see how much your perception of the Old Testament has changed in the light of who Jesus Christ truly is in the New Testament. So after three years of just immersing myself in the New Testament and the New Covenant of who we are, I can't wait to read some of these stories of old in the Old Testament. And man, I'm hoping to read the Bible through about three times next year and man, have a, just have a blast in the scriptures again. So some of y'all are thinking, wow, that's kind of ambitious. Well, you ain't got to start where I'm at. Just start somewhere. Just, just open it up and say, I'm going to read three verses of Scripture every day throughout the whole year next year. You know, I believe it's more beneficial if you'll read one verse of Scripture every day for a week and memorize it, and at the end of the year have 52 verses of Scripture or promises of God memorized than reading through the whole Bible three times and not remember any of it. Right. Amen. So it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And what God calls uh, uh, Brother Robert Stout to do isn't what he would call Pastor Americo to do and isn't what he called Pastor Derek to do. And so what we do in our own quiet times, that's between you and God. Amen. Amen. So I want you to start praying now about what your God would have you do next year. Also, January 10th. Everybody say January 10th. That is a Wednesday night. That Wednesday night, it's going to be a special night. We're going to kick off as a church called 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. Come on, thank you. Somebody get with me on this. Some of y'all are like, oh, Lord Jesus. I'm not saying you got to fast everything of food in your life, but I want you to fast something. I want you to give something up for the kingdom of God for 21 days and see how it affects your life. 
David said this, I will not give God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Some of y'all are asking God to bless 2018 when you ain't willing to sacrifice 21 days. <laughs> I'm not going to give God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Listen, I want our church to get in on this prayer and fasting deal. If we're planning on breaking ground for a new building and got to have $1.3 million raised by September plus budget, it's going to take extreme faith getting out there at the beginning of the year to see it manifesting by the end of the year. Amen? Come on now, I'm serious. I want us to press into the things of God next year like never before. I want us to seek God at such a high level that evangelism of this church becomes a natural thing, not a coached thing. Amen? Amen. I, I, see, your discipleship walk with Jesus Christ should be so powerful that evangelism is a natural fruit of it because discipleship is the root of it. Amen. A lot of people think, we need to go evangelize and then we'll make disciples. No, you need to live as a disciple and evangelism should come naturally. Right? Because your roots are deep in Christ. So your natural expression is the love of Christ and the, the, the likeness of Christ and the image of Christ that people naturally come to Christ. And evangelism shouldn't be uh, something that you think is just a spiritual gift. It should be a natural fruit uh, of your everyday life because your roots are deep in the discipleship walk of Jesus Christ. And so January the 10th, it's a Wednesday night. We're going to eat really, really good that Wednesday night. So we may have to pull out them pulled pork sandwiches again, Steve. And, <laughs> telling you that was a good meal tonight can't wait till this service done because i'm going home and eat a bunch of it i couldn't eat before service because i'd be belching all the time through the service and y'all be like man can he just quit that so that's why i don't eat before i preach but we're going to eat really good that night but then on january 31st we're going to come back together it's another wednesday night it's 21 days we're going to break the fast together as the body of christ yeah. and we're going to celebrate we're going to see great victory and some of you who have never been involved in fasting, the Wednesday service of January 3rd, we're going to do a whole sermon on fasting and what it truly means and what fasting really is and how you apply it to your life. And you begin to make the commitment that day of what you're going to start seven days later and commit to the Lord for 21 days about how you're going to fast and what you're going to fast and watch the results that God brings into your life through 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's going to be an exciting time. So I'm telling you uh, way in advance so you can get prepared for it because I don't want you coming here on the tent saying, when did this 21 days of prayer and fasting come up? It came up a long time ago in 2017, so you can be ready for it in 2018. I've given you all plenty of time to find uh, in the scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter number 4, verses 1 and 2. If you're there, say, I'm there. there. As we're talking about the lack of sensitivity, verses 1 and 2 say this. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the inserinity of liars whose consciousness, conscious, consciences has been seared for, uh, who forbid marriage and require abstinence of food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so the key part of that is whose consciences have been seared. And as we turn into the chapter of Luke chapter number 10, verse number 25, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I don't want you to count it out because you've heard it a million and one times plus three, right? I want you to start listening and thinking about this story differently with the term lack of sensitivity in your hearts and in your minds. And most of us, we think of the story of the Good Samaritan, and we start in verse number 29, but it actually starts in verse number 25. And it says, and behold, a lawyer. Everybody say a lawyer. This isn't a lawyer like you're thinking about in America. It's not the DA, and it's not the prosecuting attorney, and it's not the defense attorney. 
It means a person who is well-versed in the law of their time, which isn't the law of America. It is the law of, uh, of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And so when it says lawyer, it's literally talking about a scribe, somebody who would write and interpret the law. And so listen to this. This scribe or this lawyer stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, What is written in the law? Since you're a lawyer or a scribe and you should know about this, how do you read it? So this right here says there's a right way to read the Word of God and a wrong way to read the Word of God. So how do you read it? See, if you read it with an unrenewed mind, you're going to read it according to a works-based mentality Right? So, so, so Jesus is making a statement here. I'm not going to preach on it because I don't have enough time. But he's saying, how do you read it? So that means there's a way to read it that's in the spirit and the presence of God. And there's a way to read it wrongly. And I, I want you to begin to make sure you're reading it through the eyes of Jesus. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus answered him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now I want to stop. Most of the time when we read about um, Jesus confronting the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the, and the priesthood, it's always negative. Here, this man actually had right motive when he answered. And when he said this, this isn't the first time it was written. This is written way back in the book of Deuteronomy. So this lawyer or this scribe who would interpret and write the law for the people of their day knew what to answer Jesus. And so he was correct in his verbiage, but his next statement shows he was wrong in his heart. You can be right in your language, but wrong in your heart. You know that? Yeah. And so in this, he said, but desiring to justify himself. <laughs> See, there's the problem coming in. See, as believers, we need to let the word of God justify us, not us try to justify ourselves. Yeah. We need to let the word of God bring justice and righteousness into us not us try to justify ourselves by what we already know about the Word of God. See, the, a, a lot of Christians these days try to prove their faith rather than living by faith and letting faith prove out itself. Yeah, right? And I don't want you to try to prove your faith there, but I just want you to live by faith and your faith will prove itself out by the way you live, walk, talk, eat, and breathe. And so desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers. Now, I'm going to pause. In Jewish culture, the only time you would go down from Jerusalem to Jericho is if you were on the way back from a feast where you just sacrificed something to the Lord. And so this man, he was on his way down to Jerusalem from Jericho, and so as he was going, he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving, himself, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. So he had just came from doing the same thing the guy who got beat up was doing. And a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. Now, a priest in the Bible, as it talks about here, this is somebody who was a direct descendant of the high priest of Aaron. That's how he got the label priest. 
The Levite was just somebody that was born to the tribe of Levi, Levi, which was the priestly tribe that would do the preparation of the temple and the tabernacle all the way from the time it was instated. So whenever you read the term priest in the Bible, this would have been a direct descendant of the great high priest Aaron, the first priest. Whenever you see somebody that says he was a Levite, he was of the tribe of Levi, the, the, the tribe that was set apart to do the work of the church so basically what is saying you have a priest you have a lead pastor who is leaving church on a sunday morning and saw somebody beat up on the side of the road and said i'm going to take the other service road you have a church member because you're a royal priesthood a holy nation that just left church saw somebody beat up on the side of the road said i'm following pastor's lead i'm going on the other side of the uh, the other access road and so to put this in our terms We've got to realize that Jesus was talking about a society that had been so desensitized. They had just come from worship and sacrifice. And they missed their opportunity for true worship and sacrifice. And so he goes on, and now by chance, going down the road, when he saw him, he passed on the other side, like so the Levite. And when he came to the place, he saw him, pass by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan... You read, throughout, ooh, sorry. you read throughout the New Testament, and Jesus, when he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, I had to go through Samaria. And Thomas said, good, we'll go and we'll die with you there too. Because yeah. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans, with, when, you, when you meet the woman, when Jesus met the woman, she was well-versed in the Scripture she was also well-versed in sin. And he met the woman from Samaria, and the disciples looked at him and said, why are you talking to her? And he said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And she ran off and said, come, tell, come meet the man who tell me everything I ever did. And so an ungodly woman, a Samaritan, that Jews were supposed to have no dealings with, went and led a two-day citywide revival to a people who would receive him, versus the people when he got to where Lazarus was wouldn't receive him because when he walked up he said well isn't this man the one who healed the sick could he not even save his own friend yeah. <laughs> do you understand how much this relates to church today yeah. and so the Samaritans were a group of people who were brought in to um, after the, the, the Israelites were exiled into Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans were a crew, group of people brought in by the Babylonians to occupy that territory. When the Israelites came back 70 years later, the Israelites and the Samaritans began to intermingle in their marriage relationships, which was against Jewish customs. So anybody who married into the Samaritans were half Jew and half Samaritans were, were, were ostracized and kicked out. And so you had this city in the nation of Israel called Samaritans where there were people who could not prove their lineage to be true Jewish heritage they were rejects of society and Jews had no dealings with those people so now get this you got the lead pastor the priest you got a good group of church members a Levite coming down the road they both pass on the other side of a man who's beat up dead and dying then you got a reject whose society has rejected and he comes to the place, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Mm. When it's Christmas time, and we're all buying presents for our family, but the lost person 
buys a present for empty stocking. The lost person pulls an angel off the angel tree and teaches their own kids how to give. <laughs> a little too close to home. I'm telling them to step back. Some of y'all are like, wow. <laughs> but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, this guy was on an objective too. He was going someplace too. It wasn't in his path to help somebody and change a tire either. Come on. It wasn't in his time frame to stop and help somebody on the side of the road either. It wasn't in his time frame to run to Walmart and get somebody a gas card either. It wasn't in his time frame to make sure he could bake a turkey for people at the Ferrari Inn on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving either. Right? But he did. And as he journeyed, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, our definition of compassion at TWBC is Jeff did a great job, and I'm going to re-illustrate that. Go get his message. It is to be so moved that you do something about somebody's situation. Yeah. A lot of us have sympathy. We really don't have compassion. That's right. We have enough in us to recognize the problem, but not enough in us to do something about it. Have enough in us to see the man dying, but, oh, he would be better off dead anyway. Someone will pass by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan saw hope in something that a person who had all the hope in a coming Messiah never saw. And so, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him had compassion. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days wages, okay? Two days of your weekly paycheck that you worked your rear off for in the holiday season that you're going to spend the money on your kids' Christmas presents anyway. He said, I'm not going to spend money on their presents. I'm going to put two days of my money and make sure he's taken care of. And if it's more than that, the Bible's going to say, I'm going to make up for that also. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. It wasn't good enough that he just put him up. He's going to come back and get him. Is that not a picture of Jesus? It wasn't good enough that he was just going to come and live on earth and heal us and do miracles while here. He's going to come back and save us. Man, that's such a good picture. And I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved didn't say said, proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. One of the main issues I see in our society today is this. We judge ourselves by our greatest intentions while we judge others at their very worst moments. Right? We judge ourselves by our greatest intentions. Well, I really had great intentions about going to do that, but we judge others by their very worst moments in life. See, this is the horrible thing about social media. You can put your best intentions out there and make sure everybody thinks you look good, but we judge everybody else by their worst moments that are caught on tape. And I think in society we've come so desensitized to following after Christ and having true compassion on everyone 
that we've come to a place that we judge ourselves by what we think we're going to do and we have aspirations to do and we judge ourselves by our greatest intentions but we judge other by their worst moments and I think our philosophy about Christianity has to change just for a moment could it be possible that in this church we're the priest and the Levite and not the good Samaritan If we think about this story in true reality of our life, is it possible that we are the priest and the Levite and not the Good Samaritan? Because most of us, when we read this story, we put ourselves in the picture as we are the Good Samaritan. Pastor, if it were me, I would have stopped and helped that person. Really, we would have? Because Joel T. Meyer has countless times drove by somebody changing their tire on the side of the road and didn't stop. I'm not going to say what y'all do. I'm going to say what I do. Joel T. Meyer has countless times been irritated by the people in the Walmart line in front of me because they can't count their money fast enough because they're on a limited income and I'm not so limited at the moment. Can, can I tell on myself a little more? If, if y'all been there, say amen. amen. And the desensitization of our society has gotten so bad that we judge ourselves by our best intentions. We judge others by their worst moments. You see the mom getting out of the car and she's got the infant and it's not clothed properly because the weather just changed and we're thinking, why doesn't she put some clothes on that baby? Doesn't she know it's cold? Do you know she may not have the clothes to put on the baby? Have we gone so far? As a society, and even bringing it to relevance in today's world and society of what just happened today. I was at a pastor's meeting today, and we had several pastors at this table, and we were talking about the, the Israel-Jerusalem thing, and as I began to bring up, I said, I want to stop, and I want us to pray for them. And I said, I don't just want us to pray for the Christians. I want us to pray for the Jews that don't know Christ and haven't accepted him as I. I want us to pray for the Muslims because the last time I read this Bible, Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And it says the Son of Man has come not just to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. And the last time I checked, his heart was for everyone, all people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just those who the Western culture church thinks should be in the kingdom. So the last time I checked, instead of cursing the Muslim religion, why haven't we been praying for the Muslims who've been deceived? Have we come so desensitized to what the heart of Christ truly is that we'll pray for somebody, but we won't pray for someone else just because they've been so deceived? The fact of the matter is we should probably be praying for somebody who's so deceived. And I don't want to say more than the Christian that's being persecuted, but they know that their reward is great in heaven. So it's not that we should do more for one and less for the other. It's we should do a wholehearted gospel for both and for all people and for everyone that Christ came to die for. See, I believe we're in a place today that we so desensitized our life that we can literally be living in this type of lifestyle. I call it Christian atheism. Christian atheism. Now listen, listen to this. Christian atheism, if you think about it for a moment, it makes absolutely 100% no sense at all. It's an impossible thing. It's an oxymoron. It's kind of like Joel and Tall. It, it, it doesn't work. It don't go together. Okay, we'll use jumbo and shrimp, okay? 
I mean, it's whatever you want to say. But Christian atheism, it doesn't go together at all. But we know what Christian is. It's a follower of Christ. And knowing that we are a follower of Christ, the short version is we believe that there is a God, not just a God, but one God, and he is Jehovah God. Atheism is this, believes that there is no God. So what is meant when I say the term Christian atheism? What is meant by that? Our theology leaves no place for the thought that there is no God. My Christian mindset, way I've been trained, leaves no thought for the placement that there is no God. So my theology is correct. So that's where I am Christian through and through. It leaves no place to think that there is no God. Here's where the contrary comes in. Our lifestyle, on the other hand, seems to embrace the definition of atheism. Belief that there is no God. We walk down the road and we see the person changing the tire and... We're going on to our journey. We're the priest that went on the other side. We're the Levite that went on the other side. The Samaritan who stopped, he, he stopped. It's the same thing in our society today of what we're talking about. Now listen, there is this, the, the part of our lifestyle seems to embrace the definition of atheism, the belief that there is no God. Now listen, this is more than the abundance of sin. It is the absence of power of a believer. That's right. So a lot of people think, well, if we would have less sin, we would be more godly. No, if we would exhibit the power of God more, we would have less sin. See, a lot of people, you think that your, your path to righteousness is for you to stop sinning. It's not to stop sinning. It's to start living more righteous and in power of God. Because by living in righteousness and in the power of God, you automatically stop sinning. See, if you always focus on what you're trying to stop sinning about, you're still focusing on your sin. If you start focusing on the righteousness and the grace and the power and the love of Jesus Christ, you're going to start walking in righteousness and grace and in power and in the love of Jesus Christ. So what you focus on is what you begin to gravitate to. And many people are trying to focus on what we should not be rather than what we should be because the gospel of the New Testament is a gospel of shoulds and goes and do's where the gospel of the Old Testament is don'ts and regulations and laws. Right. Now listen. In this time of desensitization, we've come so desensitized. Have we even desensitized ourselves? so much away from the gospel that now we have an absence of the power of God that should be in the church and we're missing the fullness of what Jesus came to empower us to do have we come so desensitized by the things around us for example tonight you'll go home and you'll hear of a murder on the news that's normal Do you see how desensitized I am? It's, that's normal. Oh my God, were they lost? Were they saved? Did they know Christ? How's their family doing? Oh, it's just another murder. It's just another murder. Did you hear what I said? And it's not even a shock to anybody in this room. We've become so desensitized by what we see in Hollywood, what we see on the movies, that, that oh, it's just another murder. Oh, so-and-so's getting a divorce. Man, that's horrible. Really, is it horrible or is it horrible? Because we've become so desensitized that sin has become the normal because of the absence of the power that we're supposed to be walking in, that we're so desensitized that we accept the, the most, some of the most grievous sins as normal, and we're okay with that as a society. 
where you read the story of the Good Samaritan, and it literally is this. A man who should have been the most desensitized was the most sensitive to what he should do to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people who should have been the most sensitive were the most desensitized and said, I'm going to take the other service road. For example, you ever been caught in Dallas traffic because of a car wreck? Are you more mad about the wreck and mad at the people in the wreck? Or are you mad that you're not going to get to your place on time? See, we become so desensitized. We could care less if somebody died in the wreck. I'm going to be late to my place. The Black Friday sale just isn't going to happen for me. Right? I, I love that. Is your crock pot really worth it? <laughs> the $20 crock pot, is, is it really worth it? But we become so desensitized. True story. I was driving down the road the other day. Well, I'm not going to tell you a false story. So, I just, <laughs> True story. I was driving down the road the other day with my kids in the back, and, they, and we all hear sirens. Daddy, annoyed by the sirens, turns up the music. Because I'm listening to Christian radio, right? Turn up the music because I don't want to hear the sirens. They're getting on nerves. My son says, Dad, shouldn't we turn it down and pray for them? Okay. Come on, kids. Mm, I had a bad day. Quit. Right? You know what I'm saying? So desensitized. I'm not even looking at my wife in the moment. I'm kind of embarrassed. Right? So desensitized that we hear sirens. I turn Christian music up. He says, Daddy, shouldn't we turn it down and pray? Who was the neighbor to the victim? Wasn't the pastor of the church. And, and, and I'm telling on myself tonight because I know if I struggle with this, I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure I'm not alone. And at Christmas time, when we should be the most sensitive to the movement of the Spirit of God, have we become the most desensitized group of people on the face of the planet? Because we're on a journey to get somewhere, to be involved in something, to do in something. And so I'm going to ask you this question. If you are the Good Samaritan and the priest and the Levite going down the road, I'm going to ask the question, what do you see? What do you see? When you're driving, what do you see when you leave this place? What do you see when you walk into your workplace? What do you see? And what I mean by that is, what do you do practically? What do you see? And what are you desensitized to? Is she the one in the cubicle crying again and you're tired of her crying? Or does she really have an issue that you're supposed to reach out and touch? Well, she's like this every day. Well, probably because you haven't given her a touch from God yet. Right? Well, pastor, she goes from issue to issue to issue. I remember when I went from issue to issue to issue. What about your next issue? Well, I don't have them all the time. <laughs> How many times should a brother forgive his brother? Seven or 70 times seven when, when do we become so desensitized that we quit trying to reach people with the love and the power of God? Even if it is every single day with their next issue. I mean, I'm mind blown right now in my own personal faith crisis of how desensitized we have become 
as a people group and myself personally that when have I become the judge, jury, and executioner of you or this person who's in an issue receiving a touch from the power of God? Is it not just my calling and demand because of what Christ did for me to reach her every single day, to reach him every single day, no matter what the cost? And literally, if you work with them in the same building, there is no cost to you. You're showing up there anyway. It may be an irritation to you, but that may be a personal issue you've got to deal with. It's not a cost to you. So I'm asking you, what do you see practically? There's a reason people go to an eye doctor, and that's to check the status of their sight, right? When people go to an eye doctor, they go to check the status of their sight. They're wanting to see a couple things. They're going to check how good their vision is, and the doctor's going to tell them one of two things. They're either nearsighted or they're farsighted. Now listen, nearsighted is this. Nearsighted is myopia, a vision condition in which people can see close objects clearly, but farther away objects they cannot see clearly and are blurred. Farsightedness is this. They have higher, uh, hyperopia, which is a vision condition where they can see objects in the distance clear, but once closely, they are blurry and can't come into focus. Many of us suffer the same issues in Christianity. We're either farsighted or we're nearsighted. Some of us can only see the issue right in front of us and can only see this fix the it can only see to fix the temporal need. This in the end will never change culture. So the lady that is that I say lady, the, the individual. No offense, ladies, I wasn't trying to be offensive. The individual at your workplace who has the issue over and over and over every day, I understand if you're a Christian with farsightedness, you're thinking, if I pray for her every day, she's never going to get past her issue. If you're a Christian with nearsightedness, you have compassion for the moment and you're praying every day, but you're still not changing the culture of her life. We as Christians, many times, we suffer from one thing or the other. Some of us are farsighted, and all we see is the big picture down the, down the road, down the path of what you want your career like, your marriage like, your, your family like, what you're going to do in the next three to five years. But you can't see close enough to you to even get past your current issue that's going to get you to the place where you're called to be. Some of us, on the other hand, because of our past issues or insecurities or problems, we can see the things of the moment that we can do, but we can never see far enough to change the culture and the fabric of our life to become what God's destined us to become. All of us in the body of Christ need an eye exam. This eye exam does not take place by looking at letters. It takes place every time you look at a person. Your eye exam as a believer takes place every time you look at a person. Now... If anybody knows me, you know I've been uh, super elated that we have this amazing place in town that I can go and drink coffee, right? And I see some people there, hey Jennifer, all the time studying for her career path. I meet Pastor Mitch there every Monday morning and we talk about things and the direction we're headed. I have several meetings there. I meet, meet a lot of other pastors there. But you know what I saw this morning as I got out of my Jeep? I opened the door, and I saw somebody in the car moving next to me. And as I sat there answering a text message, I looked over, and I saw a little boy sleeping in the car when it's 40-something degrees outside and pulling a blanket over him trying to keep warm. And you know what my thought just this morning was when I'm preaching on desensitization tonight? What in the world is that mama thinking 
having her baby stay in the car like that. So this was just this morning. Just today, I had those exact thoughts. And I said you have an eye exam every time you look at a person. And can I tell you, I failed my eye exam. I failed it. Miserably failed it. I mean, completely miserably failed the eye exam. Bought my wife a cup of coffee. But I never checked out a boy sleeping in a car asking him if his needs were met. Or if it's that cold that he's got to sleep in a car because his mama's getting up to go to work and I praise her for working, maybe I should buy that mama a $50 gas card so the car could run a little bit and the heater could be on while she could still work in the building. Do you see how miserably I fail? You have an eye exam. Every time you look at a person... Every time you look at a person, you look around this building tonight and there's a hundred people in this sanctuary and you look at, you have an eye exam. Are you nearsighted and can only see maybe what they're looking at on the outside? Are you farsighted and all you can see is, man, I hope their life is good in the next three to five years. I'm so glad they're coming to church. Or are we actually seeing different and seeing the way that Jesus would see? And so when I ask you this question, what do you see you're taking an eye exam. Now listen, Jesus had the amazing ability to walk in perfect vision. He saw more than nearsightedness. He saw more than the issue at hand. He had more than farsightedness, the things that were to come. What did he see? He saw John chapter 5, verse 19, and Jesus gave them this answer. Verily, truly, I tell you this, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed for just as the father raises the dead and gives him life even so the son gives life to whom he pleased to give it now listen i believe god wants you to do the greater things but if you can't pass the eye exam to see what you're supposed to be doing how are you ever going to do the greater things that you're supposed to do when you don't even see what you're supposed to do it does that make sense if Joel's going to take care of all the homeless in Silver Springs, how come he didn't recognize the boy sleeping in the car? <laughs> I failed the eye exam. So if God is going to do great things through Joel, Joel's got to not just see it, he's got to see it how the Father sees it. Because Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father doing. And if I begin to see what the Father sees, then I'll begin to do what the Father wanted me to do. Jesus said, I only do what I see him doing. Why did Jesus do so much awesome stuff? Because he saw his Father. He saw what the Father was doing. Now listen, how did Jesus see perfectly? He had the ability to see the value in every person. See, we become desensitized because we don't see the value in somebody. Thus, it's more important for me to get to my place on time than the woman who just died in the car wreck or the man who just died in the car wreck, right? And the sirens are on my nerves, so I'm turning up my Christian music so I don't have to put up with the man who just died in the car wreck and the sirens... So I can get to my place on time and in a good mood so I can act like a good Christian when I get out of my car. You see my problem? See how far your pastor's got to go? 
See what issues we face with desensitization? Jesus saw perfectly because he had the ability to see the value in every person, or he saw what the Father saw in every person, because when Joel T. Meyer was born, the Father saw this in me 2,000 years ago. He saw such value in me that 2,000 years before I was born, he sent his son to die for me. He saw that much value in me that he said 2,000 years from now, Jesus, in 1977, there's going to be a blonde-headed kid born in Michigan that I see value in. So can you die for him today even though he's not going to appear for 2,000 years? He had the value to see, he had the ability to see the value in every person. Listen, in Mark chapter 10, he had the ability to see the value in the blind man. In John 5, 8, he had the ability to see the value in the cripple man. In Luke 18, he had the ability to see the value in the rich man. Now, a lot of us like to see the value in the rich people. <laughs> hey! <laughs> rich people come to church. Oh, did you see who was at church today? Homeless person coming to church. You see who was at church today? Rich people come to church, you escort them to the coffee bar. Broke, poor, homeless people come to church, you escort them to the bathroom hoping they'll get cleaned up. I'm just saying. I'm not trying to be ugly, I'm really not. I'm trying to bring reality of where we're at. If you don't have the reality of where we're at, you're never going to get to where you're going because you don't have the right starting place. In Mark 5, 2, he saw the ability to see the value in the outcast. In Mark, Matthew 19, he had the ability to see the value in the children. In Luke chapter 19, he had the ability to see the value in an ungodly rich man. In John 4, he had the ability to see the value in an adulterous woman who was in her seventh relationship. And she caused a two-day revival. You cannot see what you're not looking for. And when you finally do see, how are you seeing? Jesus asked the question, how do you see? Or how do you read? Is what he asked. So you got to realize it's more than frames. Now, I got this awesome pair of glasses here. It's Derek's. They're not mine. You like it? Blue frames, orange lenses. Do I look studious? Do I look like I got education now? Myopia or hyper? They're actually just clear frames. So, The ironic thing about glasses is many people spend hundreds of dollars on the frames. You want the coolest frames, the neatest frames, the awesomest frames. You can spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on the frames. But if you got the wrong lenses, it doesn't matter how much you spend on the frames. I don't know how much these frames cost. But I've got friends who've spent over $1,000 on frames. And you know what? They're so frustrated with their glasses because the prescription isn't just right. So all the money you can spend in the world, if the, frames aren't, or if the lenses aren't right, the frames don't matter. It doesn't matter how good you look if how you see doesn't change. It doesn't matter how great your lifestyle is. It doesn't matter how awesome your family is until you change how you see what you're seeing. See, we have the wrong priority because we put all the money on the lenses or all the money on the frames and a little bit of money on the lenses hoping they don't get scratched. <laughs> Come on. Hoping they don't get scratched when it would not be worthwhile to invest money on how we see. As the Father looks at you, He sees a person who's righteous, a conqueror, anointed, a saint. He views you differently. Listen, 
The Father views you differently, not because of what you did, but because of what he did. The Father views Joel T. Meyer differently because of what he did through Jesus Christ, not because of what I did on June 22, 1988. His view of me changed the moment Jesus Christ was raised again from the dead. His view of me changed again when he sent the Holy Spirit in power 50 days later. He saw me an anointed, more than a conqueror, Holy Spirit-filled saint in the kingdom of God is how he saw me from what he did for me. He saw me different because of what he did. Laura, if you and the worship team want to come on up. The Father views us through the lenses of the blood of Jesus. The Father views us through those lenses and it changes him. We must view people through the lenses called this, the Father. Jesus said, I can only do what I see my Father doing. Therefore, we need to start seeing through the lenses called the Father. We need to start seeing differently. And I want to close with this one point. This is not something we put on others who need Jesus so bad, glasses are something we put on ourselves. See, a lot of people try to do this with their Christian walk. They try to do this. Hey, you need these glasses. I think they would look good on you. And if you do this different, now you'll see different. You're doing so good. See, the problem is, as believers, we've got our glasses and we're trying to put them on everybody else so they'll look different. If you want somebody to look different, you need to get the glasses designed for you, put them on your face so you begin to see differently on how they actually look. God's given you a specific set of glasses just for you. And if you don't put them on yourself, you will never see differently. But Derek Joel's fallen into this trap many times. People come into the church, and I don't view them with the lenses of the Father. I try to put my glasses on them and say, if you'll just do this, 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 your life will change. If you just do this, your life will change. And what I should do is, the Father loves you. The Father sees you so differently. I know you're not in the best place in your life right now, but I don't want to try and change you. I want to love you. Did you hear that? I'm not worried about changing you, Derek. I want to love you. I want to love you right where you're at. Because like I said all last year, you're not a project to be fixed. You're a person to be loved. And so if Joel doesn't begin to put his glasses on himself and see through lenses called the Father differently, I will always make the same assertions on people that the priest and the Levite did, and I will try to fix them in my own power rather than love them with His power that will actually change their life. You know, I wasn't changed because somebody tried to fix me. I was changed because a youth pastor loved me in a moment of brokenness. And he said, Joel, the only person who can fix you is Jesus. Do you want to know Him? And I said... Yeah, absolutely, I want to know him. And in tears and in bawling, on June 22nd, 1988, I crawled over to him and I gave him a hug and he led me to Christ and my life has been changed forever. He didn't try to fix me. Do, do we understand that? Even at altar calls, people come forward and I want our ministry team to, to take heed on how they minister. As you listen to somebody... Are we listening to them to try to fix them or are we listening to them to love them? How desensitized have we become as a society? I want to close with this scripture. 
As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out loud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. See, the only thing you've got to say tonight is those two words, Yes, Lord. Are you willing to love? Yes, Lord. Then he says, Your eyes are going to be opened. Go and see clearly. Because that's exactly what he told these people. He said, he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. See, God's not asking you to come up here and repent because you've messed up just like I have with this desensitization thing. What he's asking is, will you simply say, yes, Lord? Will you simply say, yes, Lord? Will you simply say the next time I open your eyes to something? And he's, when you start, you're not going to see everything. But when he opens your eyes to something, will you say, yes, Lord? And that's all he's asking. Yes, Lord. Tonight, will you put on your glasses? Don't worry about the person next to you. They got their own set. Don't, don't worry about your spouse. They got their own set. Husbands, love your spouse. Don't try to fix them. That's Jesus' job. They got their own set of glasses. But all that God is asking you to do today is with your set of glasses, He's asking you a question. Do you want to see and if you'll say, yes, Lord, all you got to do is this. Yes, Lord, and put on your glasses. Now the test is, will you keep your glasses on long enough for your next eye exam? Because tomorrow morning you're going to walk into that same workplace. That same individual in that same cubicle is going to be there with the same issue. Same issue. And how will you see them? He asked the lawyer who knew the law, how do you read it? You know how you always say, I can read somebody? How do you read it? I'm not going to have an altar call where you can come to the front and, oh God, I'm so sorry. Show your, show your sorriness to the Father by a change of action tomorrow. Yeah. I don't want you to come up here and cry and feel bad that you've messed up. I want you to change. And the way you change is by you putting on a pair of glasses. So as we close in prayer at this time, I want everybody to close your eyes. Don't bow your heads, just close your eyes. I want you to hold your head up straight and tall because you're not a loser. Amen? You're not a quitter. You're not a failure. You're not somebody who's going to bomb it out tomorrow. You're a person empowered by the grace of God to do the work and the will of God. So my one question for you is this. Do you want to see clearly? If you do, hold your hand up real high. The question is this, do you want to see clearly? And if your hand's held high, on the count of three, I want you to say, yes, Lord. The question is, do you want to see clearly? One, two, three. Yes, Lord. Father, with that commitment to you, we say, open our eyes to see.
the things that we've never seen before. Open our heart to feel where we've been hardened again in our life. Open ourselves up to see what you're up to, what you're doing. Empower us with grace, God, to go change a lost and dying world, not by telling them how wrong they are, but by loving them the way Jesus would. Mm, come on now. I want to love you more. Father, I want to love you more. And I praise your name.